This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. This week we look at two big stories, each of which might have major implications for the media and the country. Firstly, it looks like the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, is deadly serious about taking on the big platforms. It's taking Google to court over what the ACCC claims is the platform's misleading of Australian consumers. But are we also guilty of not taking our own data seriously enough? Also, defamation law in New South Wales may be about to change, and with that, defamation law across the country. With a series of lost cases and crippling payouts, are these proposed changes just what the news media has been asking for? And are we about to see a lot more stories in the public interest? To help us through these two big and important topics, we are joined by one academic and one working journalist. Dr. Sasha Maliteritz is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for Media Transition here at UTS, where I'm lucky enough, in fact, to also work with him. In a previous life, he was a feature writer for the Sydney Morning Herald. Sasha is the author of a new book, Net Privacy, How We Can Be Free in an Age of Surveillance. And Amber Schultz is an investigative reporter at Crikey. She's worked at The Age and Nine News. She is a young Walkley finalist, Jacoby Walkley scholar, and has won an Aussie Our Watch Award. She's recently been on Fourth Estate, co-hosting our collaboration with Crikey called Jeffrey Rush Trial by Media. Well, if you regularly listen to Fourth Estate as a podcast, did you know that Apple and our podcast platform, Wooshka, collect your data? In turn, we here at Fourth Estate know how many people listen each week and the general location of our listeners, and we even know what kind of device you are using to listen. So it's sobering to know just how much and how freely your own personal data is floating around in the digital economy, even when you're doing something as simple and as innocent as accessing our podcast. Which brings us to Google. Google might be the world's most popular search engine, but really they are in the business of collecting data and they collect an awful lot of it. You might be thinking, so what if Google knows what I've been searching for? It's their platform. But how do you feel knowing that Google also collects your data from non-Google websites? And they have been collecting this data for four years. And here's the kicker, you agreed to it. I'm guessing you don't remember giving Google this permission to track your activity all over the internet, which is what the ACCC thinks, and which is why they're now taking Google to court over this matter, labelling the move by them to start collecting this data four years ago as, quote-unquote, deceptive by design. Sasha, I'll start with you. Uh, We've got the ACCC having a go at Google. Was this move necessary and a timely one, do you think? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Data is a mess. Um, The way that our personal data is being used um, and the way that digital companies are using data, it's all happening in the background. It's unclear. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty. And the issue that the ACCC is focused on here is one of informed consent and whether there's been uh, misleading conduct, you know, whether the practices Mm. of these companies, in in particular Google here, whether it's been misleading. Uh, And and these are really important questions to ask. So this is, we'll see how this goes. Nobody's really sure about whether the the legal proceedings will be successful or not. But I think it's really important. Mm. I think it's very important. Amber, do you think it's a war that, uh, that the ACCC can actually win? Even if it's not a war that they can win, I think it's important that Google is aware that, you know, legal systems around the world are watching what they're doing. I think there's an interesting question on even if the ACCC wins this and even if they had to have a pop-up box that, you know, gave a little bit more informed consent, does the user really have a choice? I mean, everything is so integrated now and we rely on Google and this integration so much. I really do wonder what the outcome or what the, the point of it all is, given that we don't really have a say over our data anymore. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, we'll get into that in a little while. But can I, Sasha, can I come to you here? I mean, you've written a book mm. called Net Privacy, which which is at the heart of this matter with Google and the ACCC. Do you mm. think that, is, that, that we as private citizens take our data seriously? I think we do. Look, funnily enough, this on Monday... Um, some colleagues and I were conducting some research. We were, we were holding focus groups. And the issue that we were investigating was consent and, and privacy, particularly mm. on smartphones. So we were talking about this very issue. Uh, in this case, it was with a bunch of four people up in Coffs Harbour doing it via Zoom rather than face-to-face. And we were, we were chatting with these people and occasionally someone would leave a comment in the chat. And one of the participants put a comment up in the chat saying, oh, here's an interesting story, uh, and then sent through a link. And I clicked on the URL, and it was the story about the ACCC suing Google. Right. And so um, we then discussed this in the focus group. And these these focus groups that we've been holding um, are on precisely this issue. You know, what do people think about consent? Do they think there's any hope? Is all hope gone, as, as we sometimes feel mm. um you know, and they very much you know the general there's a range of views of course but um generally people think people want to be able to consent in a meaningful way but did they actually they, know that they needed to give google consent well this is the phrase that one of them used really stuck with me and that is consent is a trap mm. sometimes consent is a trap so they they have the sense that for a lot of them Companies like Google and Facebook are using consent in a kind of tricky way and they're using lawyer words or weasel words mm-hmm. and it's, so it's not transparent. Um, you know, the, the question that Amber raises is a, is a big one. Can it be made to be effective and meaningful? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but I want to stick with this issue of, of, you know, the way we see it as consumers and the way we mm. deal with it. You know, Amber, we have seen people jump up and down about the government's COVID safe app. Right, they mm-hmm. protested left, right, and centre. But when it comes to googling, which is now a verb, we're cool, we're fine. What is it that we don't get? 
Well, I think the difference is that Google seems almost removed from any part of our judicial system or our politics. You know, Google doesn't have a face and it doesn't have a personality. And while we might not trust Google, I don't think a lot of people trust our government more. So I think that's the difference between the COVID safe app is that, you know, Google is a, is a multi-billion dollar company and we think that our data is safe with them, whereas our small governments, we don't believe so. Mm. But, I mean, if, if all they want to do is just, you know, sell me some hair shampoo or, or whatever it is and they're spying, you know, on me, feeds back into their algorithms, is that really that sinister, Sasha? Well, that that is a big part of it. Um, you know, this is a, a company that exists to make money, um, you know, apart from whatever other motives it might have, and they may, might be altruistic motives too. But, you know, they're a company that wants to make money and mm. they make money in the way that you just described by by advertising. But right? all, all, all com- huge... that's what companies do. They make money, right? So what's That's, r- that's so, right. Yep. So, um, but it can get more sinister. Who else, where else is this data going? Who else is using this data? And in what other ways is this data being used? So I guess, you know, the example that, that pops to mind readily is Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. where data was being used in a way that was hidden in order to influence people's voting patterns. So to stay away from voting in the 2016 US election or to vote for one candidate over another or, or just yeah, not to vote for a particular candidate. And this was, we, we don't really know how effective this was. According to some, it was pretty effective, but it may, we just don't know. It may have determined the US election in 2016. So there are these, the, the basic principle is that this data is really revealing. So each of us, given our online activities, is very much revealed and exposed, and therefore we are subject to hidden manipulations. You know, this is in regard to what we buy, but also maybe in regard to how we vote or other patterns of behaviour. Apart from those, you know, those big kind of geopolitical questions and the big sovereign political questions, mm. how can the data be used against us? Well, that to me is the most obvious example, um, voting. Mm. Um, but apparently... You know, and, and I just take the word here of, of people who are expert in psychology and, and behaviour and so on. And you know, apparently we're pretty open to, to being nudged in certain directions, swayed in other directions. So we can often be manipulated, not like puppets. You know, we can't, if, if I'm a, um, you know, if I'm a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, you know, there, there won't be personalised advertising and targeted political advertising won't make me vote left all of a sudden. But it might just convince me that actually the most effective thing for me is to vote for this candidate over that candidate or to stay away from voting. So apparently it's it's very effective at teasing out which issues will be very effective at convincing people to, to behave in certain ways. Mm. Amber, do you agree? Do you think it's it's way more sinister than most people have come to believe it is? That it's, way, that it's way more than just pushing, you know, uh, companies with a product to sell in our, into our faces? I do think so. I mean, they're trying to create a very comprehensive profile of every individual user and they're doing that through a huge range of data. You know, what you eat through your, through your calorie tracking apps, mm. you know, how you walk, how often you walk, all these different things. Late, late last year, the New York Times found that um, Google was trying to strike a deal with this massive healthcare company, Ascension, to try and find out all the, you know, pre-existing health issues that people had. For Google to have that data is huge. Not only can they sell you products, but they can then sell that information onto insurance companies. It's just, it opens up this whole 
plethora of problems. And I don't think people realize they they simply assume that Google is trying to sell you things. But I think it's much bigger than that. Okay, so let's move on to the issue of consent. Now, Rod Sims, the ACCC boss, says in regards to Google's behavior, and I quote here, we're taking this action because we consider Google misled Australian consumers about what it planned to do with large amounts of their personal information, including internet activity on websites not connected to Google. Now, that sounds like very serious stuff, but do you think that the average person would feel that they've been tricked, Sasha? That's a it's a difficult question to answer. I'm not sure, um, but you know, just going on these focus groups that we've we've literally just held in the past week, mm. um, a lot of people do think there's something fishy going on with informed consent. Um, they they want to be able to consent in a meaningful way. And they realise that there's a big problem. There's so much data out there anyway, but still they, they realise there's something going on. Um, for, the, for the ACCC, I guess they're faced with this, this, this internet, this, this ecosystem where um, there's a huge problem of the way data is used and a lack of transparency, all these hidden transactions. So it's a matter for the ACCC, I guess, of thinking, okay, what do we focus on? And this is the second lawsuit that the ACCC has brought, mm. both of them against Google, um, stemming from the, the digital platforms inquiry. The first one was last year, which you might remember. Um, again, they, they're, they're taking action against Google in that case about location data. And the ACCC is arguing that a particular dialogue box that popped up with Google about location history seemed to suggest to users that if they were clicking, they were turning off Google's location tracking. In fact, if you wanted to turn off the location tracking, you needed to go a bit deeper and into the settings. So uh, this is a pattern of litigation that the ACCC is embarking on to test the waters and yeah. to say, okay, there's a lot that's going on that's problematic, mm. but these will, will set some sort of marker about this is wrong. You know, so this, is, this is something we should... Uh, outlaw. Well, actually, you take me to my next question because yesterday when all of this was was out there in a flurry and, and breaking, I, I had a bit of a look at the settings myself to see whether I could adjust my settings. And mm. I really wasn't actually convinced uh, with all of the disclaimers that were attached to, e to e each button that implored you to turn something on or off, that it would allow me to curtail Google's activities. Is it, do yeah. you think that's a problem? Yes, I, I do. I often get dialogue boxes come up and I'm not sure which one means what. Yeah. <laughs> does, does, does that mean I'm turning it off or on? Yeah. You know, it's sometimes unclear and I think deliberately so. And, and, does, um, it, and does it wipe my history and, and will I now for never, ever, ever see an advertisement for the things that I actually like to buy, like things for my dog? You know, I mean, what, what does it all mean? Exactly, exactly. And, and look, Google is certainly not the worst offender here. Google um, goes to great lengths in certain cases to make things clear. Mm. Um, you know, we showed people in our focus groups various screen grabs um, of different companies and their, their settings and so on. And the Google ones compare pretty well in a lot of cases. Um, but the ACCC is saying that in this particular case there was a, there was a fairly clear failure of informed consent.
The other thing that I was going to ask you both about, actually, and that is Facebook, because um, the number of times that you get advice or we receive advice about how to turn advertisements off or limit advertisements, for example, on Facebook, and the number of times I've personally gone into my Facebook settings to attempt to do this and think I've done it, and it makes absolutely no difference. So will it be the same here, where even uh, if the ACCC, for example, were to win this case uh, and that Google were to adjust its settings to make it more transparent, that it really would kind of revert back to where it is currently? Possibly. I suspect so. I think there's a huge issue with data literacy in in the general population. Not only are companies deliberately trying to, you know, hide what they're doing or or misconstrue what they're doing, but even if they were very clear about it, I don't know if the average Australian would understand. Mm. And and if that doesn't happen, I mean, if if it's not meaningful at the end, what does that mean for the, you know, entire nature of informed consent? Does it kind of render it a bit meaningless, Sasha? Look, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Let's just put it like that. I I, I do think the ACCC's action here and and the one they embarked on last year are really important, mm-hmm. and they will set really significant precedents. And they've tried to pick clear cases. So, in this case that was launched on Monday, we're talking about something that happened in 2016, um, where there there was, according to the ACCC, a very clear failure of informed consent when Google started merging. Uh, uh, data from across various platforms and started changing the way it would compound the information that it used to target you with ads. And so it says the way that Google made that change did not give users the valid option of informed consent. It wasn't really informed consent. Mm. Um, I Look, I think for you, you mentioned Facebook. Uh, mm. Of course, Facebook is huge. Um and will be very much under the scrutiny of the ACCC as well. So, you know, maybe there's more to come in regards to Facebook. I think that what we're seeing is a shift. Um, there's been a, a shift uh, over the last couple of years where the tech companies have come under greater, under greater scrutiny. And so now it's like, okay, what can we do here to make things fair at a level of playing field between individuals and, and platforms? Mm. Um, and society. Okay, now collecting data, as we said, not unique to Google. Large media organisations have masses of data on their audiences, you know, from what you click on, how long you stayed in the page, did you make it to the bottom of the article? So media too uses algorithms to push stories and, and advertising our way. Amber, is there a problem with that? Um, I suppose so. I think one of the problems that we have with these algorithms, with media particularly, is you know, we end up creating this little bit of a of a bubble. The more you click on one thing, the more likely you are to see that same thing. So you really limit the diversity of viewpoints. In terms of how long you stay on an article and whether you click through, I think that's very valuable information for an organisation to know whether someone has actually read, understood and taken active interest in the article. Mm. But there is concerns that, you know, by looking solely at this information that, you will create just a a little bubble, a little echo chamber where all people see is what they want to see or what they've previously seen. Well, that's a problem for journalism, but you can see how it could benefit media organisations in a business sense, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And you could sell sell everything you learn about that. I don't think media organisations are doing very well at it, given the, um, the state of the industry today, but it's certainly a potential. So I wonder then, you know, if media was more savvy about selling data, would that represent a possible business model? Sasha, what do you reckon? 
Well, this is something the HLC and others are thinking about too. So you're, you're right, you know, it's, it's the algorithm, right? So um, uh, for a company like the New York Times, uh, who, uh, yeah, that's a huge publication with an international audience, they're really involved in this space. So they're really, over the past few years, they've really worked to uh, use their data that they have about subscribers, about potential subscribers. So what is the best time to target someone with an ad to take out a subscription, what sort of ad might appeal to them? Um, so there's there's potential for abusive data there too on the part of traditional media. Mm. Um, and look, to me, it just comes back to uh, we need to work out ways that data um, is used responsibly. And the only way we can ensure that, I think, is to have some good uh, laws put in place which don't currently exist or aren't certainly they don't exist in Australia. It, it certainly sounds like it's time that we kind of started seeing our personal data as being not just um, a part of our own identity, but as a kind of as a human right, really a basic human right. Very much so. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Mm, and and he- also, one just to complicate it further, it is the fact that my data is not just about me. So there's this kind of interconnected nature about well, about each of us anyway, but online this really comes to the fore. And so when I, you know, if I, for instance, post a photo to social media and there are other people in it, I'm sharing something about them as well. Mm. Um, and so this is, this makes the whole notion of informed consent and how we regulate this space even more complicated. You're listening to Fourth Estate, coming to you across the Community Radio Network. Our guests this week are Sasha Militaritz and Amber Schultz. We've talked about some very high-profile defamation cases over recent years here on this program, most recently with Crikey, with whom we did a podcast series looking at how the Daily Telegraph found itself almost killing off the Me Too movement in Australia through its claims about Geoffrey Rush. So New South Wales Attorney-General Mark Speakman has indicated that defamation law might finally be about to be reformed and the proposed changes are potentially big for journalism. The media has in recent years been left with only truth as a major form of defence in defamation cases. Truth might sound like a fair test, but in cases where the matter is also in the public interest, but also heavily contested, the media has found itself in an impossible place. In short, publish and be damned. Can I start with you, Amber, by asking you, I mean, investigative reporters like Kate McClymont have long said that defamation as it is currently being interpreted by our courts is stifling investigative journalism. I take it you would agree with that? Absolutely. We have some of the most stringent defamation laws in the world, and it really inhibits a lot of people from being able to come forward or a lot of people being named in the media because the payouts are massive. The payouts are huge. The amount of money small publications have to dis- have to spend on defending themselves, even when they do their due diligence, just the risk of going of having a lawsuit, regardless of the outcome, costs organisations so so much money. You know, I think every journalist I've spoken to has a story that they just can't get off the ground because of the defamation risk. Mm. And I suppose if we look at how long it took uh, the Sydney Morning Herald to get its uh, Dyson Hayden story up, uh, Mm. Dyson Hayden being the former High Court judge who was recently accused of um, sexual sexual misconduct or stalking, um, that there was a big gap between the Telegraph story on Geoffrey Rush, which has just been blown out of the water, and the Hayden story. Is that gap due to the difficulty of publishing under the current law, do you think, Amber? 
I believe so. The the Sydney Morning Herald had to wait a very long time until the High Court actually, you know, had their own uh, case against Dyson Hayden to have that as backup before they could go forward with their piece, you know, and that was just an extra safety measure that they had. But it, it was incredibly tough, especially given that Dyson Hayden is an expert in evidence law. Yes. It really, <laughs> really <laughs> helped things. That's right. Yeah, very unhelpful. So take, yeah. us, take us through how you'd go about conducting a Me Too story and, and what you'd have to currently do to get your editor to actually agree to publish, Amber. Well, the more voices, the better. I mean, this should be happening regardless of, of defamation laws. Journalists really do have to do their due diligence. You can't just go, you know, airing baseless claims. Saying that, I think, you know, people are most interested in Me Too stories if it's a high-profile person, which makes it more difficult because the more high-profile a person is, the bigger, you know, aggra- uh, aggravated damages can be, the bigger the payout if the defamation charge ever went forward, the more expensive the lawyers. Mm. So if if a journalist is looking to, to do a Me Too story, they really need several people on the record who are willing to have their names and faces out there and will be willing to defend their story in court, which you know, it's really unfair for a survivor to have to to have to do. It's really off-putting for survivors to have to do. You've got to speak to not only the person, but any witnesses there might have been, anyone who the person spoke to after the alleged harassment or misconduct occurred, anyone who might have had a different opinion. It's incredibly resource-heavy to do any kind of sexual allegations. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, Sasha, the new proposed test would be if, mm. if publishing a story is in the public interest and the publisher reasonably believes that the story is in the public interest, mm. uh, that is that they act in good faith, you pass the test. The key change being that the story would not have to be proved true to the very high standard normally measured by our courts. Is that a game mm. changer? Is it really a game changer? It is potentially, yeah. We'll have to see. I mean, defamation law is really tricky and complicated it dates back 800 years and it's it's uh, gone through all these weird twists and turns it really is labyrinthine and um these changes we have to see how they're now interpreted by the courts in coming years mm. but yes this is potentially a really big game changer um that that will that's a win for for media companies news media companies and and look if i if if i can just go back to to that point about Jeffrey Rush and um, those cases, the Dyson Hayden case uh, and the stories that were published, the stories, the reporting done by Kate McClymont and Jackie Maley was just exemplary. You know, mm-hmm. um, as someone who worked as a journalist and as someone who's taught some journalism courses, I just looked at those and how they unfolded over several weeks and just thought that is a wonderfully researched piece of journalism that's unfolding right the the work that's gone into this that is that is exemplary Hmm. and you know you go back to the jeffrey rush story um when that appeared a couple of years ago i remember seeing that poster um king lear yeah for the for the daily telegraph and thinking whoa now that's that's big and and i i then got the daily telly i read the story and i thought that seems like a flimsy foundation on which to to pin this story mm. so immediately alarm bell started ringing in my head about defamation yeah yeah um, now the way the court case actually unfolded there was substance there but but that was kind of backwards you know the it, the story in the first place needed more more good journalism before it went to print is that's you know in my opinion mm. um, but to bring it back again to these changes you know over the years 
it's been this refrain, we need defamation law reform. We need defamation law reform for all sorts of reasons. Now it's almost, you know, it's, it's like, oh, we can't say that anymore. <laughs> it's here. Yeah. Finally, yeah, yeah. we have it. And I think this is it overall it's really positive it's really good and this is a really significant step in the right direction to this public interest test so amber do you think that if these changes actually uh, come to pass that they will deliver better journalism i think better journalism definitely i i think that there is less risk that a survivor will have to come and you know as we saw in the jeffrey rush case i think that scared off a lot of people from Mm. from reporting anything either to the media or just internally within their organizations because erin jean norval was on the stand having text messages and emails read out scrutinized you know every every interaction she had with rush was was questioned i think being able to fight for public interest instead of truth being able to argue that in court will have a big effect because people won't be as as there's less of a risk that people will have to go on stand to defend their actions and defend their claims Mm. i think really importantly if these defamation laws existed when the daily telegraph went with that story it wouldn't have made a difference the daily telegraph did not do due diligence and i think that these new laws they still you know it's not a free pass for journalists it's not like you can just report what what you want you still have to have evidence and and examples um so i I don't think it would have made a difference had their laws come into place three years so it doesn't save us from sloppy journalism doesn't leave us from sloppy journalism. <laughs> no, it's because the, the defo laws have also had a, a fairly deep impact um, uh, and, a, and, and you know, quote unquote, a chilling effect on general investigative journalism as well, hasn't it, Amber? Mm. And Sasha, yeah. for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Just the, the absolutely massive payout that, that Jeffrey Rush got really scared a lot of people off. Same with um, Rebel Wilson, although she had her defamation. Uh, charges reduced on appeal it, it's really just it's it's terrifying you know and I think the defamation risk is almost regardless of the court case it's just such a huge pain to happen and I think a lot of high profile people that threaten defamation know this they know that the chance of a settlement is very high because journalists and editors are just are too afraid to have to go and spend all that money in court. Mm. Mm. So you think that at the end of the day, if it comes to pass, the real difference in your work and what you do, what will it be? The real difference is that I think people will be less afraid to go after high-profile people because the public interest argument is there. You know, I think, importantly, with the Dyson Hayden case, the Sydney Morning Herald said that so many people knew about Dyson Hayden. You know, they were telling young law graduates, don't be in a room alone with him. <laughs> you know, it was, mm. it was, everybody knew. But if there was the public interest clause, they might have been able to report that earlier because that absolutely is in the public interest. But they had to wait until the High Court had its own ruling to be able to push it over the line. So I think the main thing is that editors will be less scared about going after high profile people and accusers may be a little bit less afraid of coming forward. And Sasha, mm. your hope if these laws come to pass? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Amber. I, I think, you know, but we, do, we just want good journalism and we want journalism that's in the public interest. So, you know, it just makes intuitive sense, doesn't it, just to, to have this public interest defence um, rather than something that's a little bit trickier like qualified privilege, which is the legal ground that it's replacing. Mm. Uh, I think that's... Um, that's a real win that we get better journalism and more journalism in the public interest and and that that's not um, uh, 
are likely to suffer at the risk of of potential court cases by by celebrities who or, or others with deep pockets. On that note, I'd like to thank Sasha Maliteritz and Amber Schultz for their time. Thanks, Thanks so much. Monica. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER in Sydney and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to them for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks, as always, to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.